0: We're continuing our sermon series through the New Testament book of Romans. It is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Christians living in the city of Rome. And for many believers today and throughout history, Romans is often a favorite book of the Bible for people. Maybe not for you, but for others. And one of the reasons this letter is so beloved is because Paul takes clear truth And explains it, but then He brings it right to your heart. Applying it in a way that impacts you deeply in your heart to not just know the truth, but to feel the great blessing of that truth in your life. And today is one of those kinds of passages. It's a great example of really the truth hitting your heart in Romans. And it is getting at a question that I think many of us have had or could have at some point in our lives. How can we be sure that God loves us? How can we be sure that God loves us? How can we know? Well, that's what our passage is about this morning. If you want to open your Bibles or look at the text in the bulletin, we're in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. I want you to keep that question in your mind. How can we be sure that God loves us? Let us hear the word of God. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly Oh Lord, we come to you this morning hearing your word and we pray that you would open our ears to continue to hear it, to hear it clearly explained, to hear what it does and does not mean, to hear the ways in which we need this word applied to our hearts and minds. And so Lord, use me in spite of my own sin to faithfully proclaim your word. Spirit, go forth in the power of your word and accomplish your great purposes and answer to our prayers. Work in us. That we would not only hear your word, that we would not only know your word, but that we would trust and receive it and so be molded and shaped, even transformed by your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So how can we be sure that God loves us? To do that today, we're going to look through the lens of the past, the present, and the future. These are not ghosts from the Christmas carol, just time frames, okay? So past, present, and future, but we're going to save the present for last, so we're going to go past, future, present, because that's what we see in the text here with Paul. So let's start with the past. That's what Paul is talking about in verses 6 through 8. And he points us to the sacrificial death of Jesus in the past as evidence of God's love for us. Now, this is kind of like Bible 101, that God the Father sent Jesus His Son to die for us. That's kind of a thing you might hear a lot if you've been to church or read the Bible. In fact, one of the best-known Bible verses in all the world is John 3.16. And it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. And so this is a very familiar concept to many of us. But do not let your familiarity with this truth cause you to lose your wonder at how loving God's love is. And so I want you to follow Paul's argument in these verses with me. We're going to look at just four short steps. He's laying out this argument for why the death of Jesus is undeniable proof of God's love for us. Step one in the argument is verse seven. He writes, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. So Paul says it is very uncommon in the world for anyone to give their life to die for someone else. It just doesn't happen that often. It is quite rare. And in the rare instances this happens, the person is usually giving their life for someone they love. Or someone who is good and innocent. You might think of how soldiers may give their life to protect their fellow soldiers or countrymen at home. Or maybe a parent who might risk their life in hypothermia to pull their child out of icy water they fell into. In these rare instances where people put their lives at risk, they do so for innocent loved ones. And so that's step one of his argument. He's like, this is a very rare thing, but when it does happen, it is for people you love. That it gets us to step two, which is implied in these verses. It is implied that, well, I guess people wouldn't do that for someone they hate. People do not give up their life to save an enemy. What people do is they give up their life to kill the enemy. That's what we saw in our Old Testament reading from Judges 16. Samson was willingly going to give up his life in order to kill a lot of his enemies. That's not love. That's revenge. He even says so. I want to be avenged on my enemies. And so he ends his life, he gives his life to punish those who have hurt him in the past. That's normally how people act. So that's step two. So step one, this is a very rare thing to give your life for someone, but if you do, it's someone you love. When it comes to enemies, we just we don't love them. We give our lives to kill them. So then that brings us to step three, verse six. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly that Jesus died for people who were not good, who were not innocent. He died for enemies, as it says later in verse 10. That when Jesus gave up His life, there was enmity between both parties. That we hated God and rebelled against Him. And God was justly wrathful towards sinful rebels like us. But instead of Jesus dying to kill His enemies, Jesus died to save His enemies. And that leads us to Paul's climactic fourth step in verse 8 where he brings it all together. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is showing that his love is greater than even the most exceptional and uncommon of human love. He shows that love by giving his own son to die for sinners who are in rebellion to him. And so we know God has great love for us. We know that because this love doesn't come from our lovability. You see, if a mother sacrifices herself to save her child, it's somewhat out of her own love for the child, but also because that child is lovely to her. She loves that child. It's a very nice child. If a soldier sacrifices himself to save a fellow soldier, it is because of the friendship, the brotherhood shared between them. It is his love and their love for him. But the only reason that Jesus would die for sinners is because God had love in himself for unlovable enemies like us. And so for those of you who trust in Jesus, you are a recipient of this love you have received a greater love than anything you can experience in this world. And there's proof that in the death of Jesus, you have undeniable proof of God's love for you. It has already happened. It has already been demonstrated. It is an established fact, a certain reality that God has loved you in this way. So do not doubt this love. Now, you might question... How is this possible? That's okay. But do not question that it is true. It is true that God has shown his love for you in Christ. But maybe some of you here have been Christians for some time, and you're thinking, well, that was all in the past. How can I be sure that God will continue to love me in the future? And that's a fair concern. Is it possible then that God's great love in the past might fade or diminish for us in the future? We can just look around the world today and see in the lives of other people that people who once loved each other so much now don't love each other. In fact, hate each other. Separate from one another with great vitriol. And so we might think, well, if I continue to sin Do I need to fear that I will lose God's love in the future? Well, that's what Paul writes about in verses 9 and 10. Here's what Paul says. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. In order for us to appreciate what Paul is saying here about the love of God, we need to make sure we know what he means by being saved. That Paul says that Jesus died to save us. And usually when we are talking about being saved in the church, in common Christian conversation, we mean being saved is I believe in Jesus now and I like, I'm on the guest list of heaven. That when I show up, the bouncer's going to let me in because I got saved. And in a sense, that is absolutely true. As Paul writes, we have now been justified, that we are now saved. But here's the thing, if we do not remain saved all the way through Judgment Day, then we've not actually been saved. So in one sense, our salvation has already happened, even if it's not yet complete. There are still things about being saved we have not yet received. And so if Jesus died to save us so that we could be saved for just a few years here on earth, but then a few years later He casts us off, He would not be a very good Savior. A part-time Savior. But think about what He said in John 6, our New Testament reading. This is the will of Him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me but raise it up on the last day. Jesus' saving mission requires Him to save us to the end, to completion. And so God's love for us in the past will continue into the future so we receive the fullness of our salvation. Now you're thinking, yeah, but that's like for most people. What about like this guy here who's like not very good? What if God doesn't want to do that anymore? What if we sin so much he regrets loving us in the first place? We often think of ourselves as, you know, we were a very cute puppy in the pound when we got adopted. But then we got home and started chewing stuff up and going all over the house and just being all kinds of trouble. Are they going to send Is God going to send us back to the pound? Well, Paul answers this question for us, and he points out that God loved us with literally the greatest possible love while we were still his enemies. He loved us when he had every reason to hate us, he loved us when we were the most sinful. So, why would our continued sins diminish his saving love for us? If Jesus was sent to save sinners, then why are we so afraid that being a sinner is going to disqualify us from being saved? It's the very thing that makes us savable, the very thing he wants to save us from is our sins. Now, this is one of these things where, as a pastor, I I get the privilege of counseling many of you. And sometimes we talk about how we are grieving uh, those who have died and we miss. Sometimes we talk about how hard it is to raise kids. Sometimes we talk about things that are hard at work or disagreements we might have within people in the church here. But the most common spiritual issue that I ever get to discuss with any of you is whether our continued sin... And stunted growth means that God is going to stop putting up with me. Is he at some point going to just say, enough, you're out. I've had enough with you. It's some variant of this. How can God keep putting up with me when I keep sinning like this? And so I want you to know that maybe you've never talked to me about this, but maybe you have felt this way you're not alone. Maybe you have come and talked to me like this and you thought you were the only one. Surprise. You're not. We felt this way. I have felt this way. But let me tell you that this fear that God is going to say, I've had enough with you, is vaporized by these two verses 9 and 10. That in a sense, When I have this fear or people come to me with this fear, all I have to do is act like some kind of soul doctor and say, Hey, take these two verses and call me in the morning. Just take them, chew on them, meditate on them, reflect on what they say. Because here's what they say Since you have been justified by the blood of the Son of God, how much more are you going to be saved from God's wrath on Judgment Day? If He gave His Son to start saving you, is He going to like, let's just toss that away? No. Since you were reconciled to God when you were His enemy, how much more will you be saved now that God has made you His friend and child? God has proved His love to you in the past, so rest assured that His love for you will continue undiminished into the future. He wants us to hold on to this love. And so if we have this proof of God's love in the past, the assurance of His continued love into the future, then how do we live in the present? Well, in verse 11, He tells us we should live with joy. More than that, we also rejoice In God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So joy is meant to characterize the life of the Christian. But it's got to be joy coming from the right place. Because sometimes we misplace our joy. Because often we are joyful about our circumstances. That when life is going well, we are joyful. We are happy. Things are great. This is awesome. But as we saw in last week's passage, there's suffering, that old big problem in life. And we all are going to suffer in some way. And so if we try to put our ultimate joy in our circumstances, suffering is going to come along and just drain that joy. So we can't use that. Sometimes we put our joy in our accomplishments, the joy of a job well done, thinking, man, I'm glad God has done such a good job at saving me. I've been really good recently. Like we've really patched things up like he and I. We're we're on good terms and all of this. And I've done a lot of good stuff. And if our joy comes from that, well, then when we sin and mess up, as we will, the joy gets sucked away and it is gone. And so our accomplishments, our works cannot give us joy. And so what Paul says is rejoice in God. Our joy is found in the God who loved us so much He sent His Son to die for us while we were His enemies. That instead of God condemning us as sinful rebels, He rescued us from His own wrath and reconciled us to Himself in love. And so we rejoice that God loves us even if I don't deserve it. And so no matter what happens in our life, we know that God loves us. That He will always love us. And that should fill our hearts with joy. It certainly should not fill our hearts with a desire to cut holes in the roof, throw rocks at the car, or any other such things. It should fill our hearts with joy. And that joy is a stable, renewable source of joy. See, if you think your God's love is based on how well you're obeying Him, that is unstable. But if you know God loves you because of what He has done for you in the past and what He has promised to do for you in the future, then your joy is as solid as God's love is. Your heart can be constantly fueled with the joy that the Son of God came to earth to save you from your sins. Whether they are sins that you still struggle with from the past, or those sins yet to come in the future. God loves us and forgives us. And so Christians are meant to live this life of joy in God through Jesus. We rejoice in Christ as the evidence of God's love, as the assurance of that continued love. Now, maybe you're here today and you don't know this love of God. Maybe you've heard some things about the Bible and you don't know Jesus. Maybe you have been weighed down by anxiety and doubt. Maybe your biggest fears in life are other people leaving you or no longer loving you. Hear today that a love greater than any earthly love can be yours. That your life can be a life of joy as someone loved by God. See that you are a rebel. Repent of your sinful rebellion and be reconciled through Jesus who came and died in your place and know the love of God. Perhaps for many more of you who seem a little more familiar to me, and you might know Jesus and you believe in Jesus and you know God loves you, but sometimes you struggle to know God loves you, that you can doubt God's love for you that you're anxious because you keep sinning and you're anxious about the future, you're discouraged by your sins and you struggle to even imagine how God could ever be happy with you, then hear today of God's love. That it is a love that saves sinners. And the sins that you think turn His heart away from you are the sins that fill His heart with compassion and and pity, and love. So He can come towards you and save you from those sins, telling you, I died for those. And I will bring your salvation to completion because I loved you before you ever loved me. Rejoice today in the reconciliation we have in Jesus Christ because of our loving God. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that You would give us joy. And Lord, we do pray that You would seal this Word in us. Lord, maybe we need to take two of these every morning and remind ourselves of Your great love. It is not a love that allows us to go and live wildly however we want to live. It is not giving us license to go and sin some more. No, but this love gives us that great assurance that we can try to obey and not fear failure, knowing that forgiveness lies behind as well as ahead of us. And so, God, help us to know your love and be transformed by it and share that love with others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.